Turing's Distinguished uh, Leaders Speaker Series. Uh, I'm Jonathan Siddharth, CEO and co-founder of Turing. Turing, as you know, is a platform that lets you push a button to hire and manage remote developers from all over the planet. A lot of companies on Turing are remote first, where they build distributed teams in the cloud on Turing. Um, we do this series to bring together leaders um, who are experts in building uh, distributed teams. And I have a very special guest today. Uh, today, our guest is Darren Murph, uh, the head of remote at GitLab. GitLab is a 1300 person company built entirely in the cloud as a globally distributed team. So if you ever believed, could you build a unicorn in the cloud? I, I think uh, Darren and his team at, at GitLab um, can share their playbook for how to do so. Um, Darren and the GitLab team have quite literally written the book on remote work and distributed teams. If you haven't done so already, I highly encourage you to check out uh, the remote work guides on the GitLab website, which are an excellent resource for anyone thinking about how to start out building a remote first company um, and, and to help sort of uh, demystify a lot of the process. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome uh, Darren. Welcome Darren to Turing's Distinguished Speaker Series. Absolutely, thanks so much for having me. That's great. And, and Darren, could you, could you share a little bit about your story uh, about how you got, became head of remote at GitLab, and, and tell us a little bit about uh, about how you got to um, embracing remote work and distributed teams. Yeah, so a bit about me. I've been working across the remote spectrum for over fifteen years, so my entire career, and the last two years at GitLab is my first stint at an all remote company. I remember when I first heard about GitLab. And I was told that it had absolutely no company owned offices and it was an intentional decision. I had to sit down and actually take a seat and process this. I thought, how in the world is this company uh, inventing or have, has already invented a future that uh, I always longed for? For a long time, I felt like I was pushing the remote work rock uphill uh, and now COVID has greatly democratized that conversation. And I'm excited that more of the world uh, is eager to learn more on, on how to do it well. So I joined GitLab uh, in July of 2019 as their head of remote, to my knowledge, the first head of remote anywhere in the world. And now a lot of other companies, Dropbox, Facebook, the list goes on, are also hiring a head of remote or a director of remote work. Companies are realizing that this is a massive sea change in how they operationalize their company and how they convert tacit knowledge or implied knowledge to documented explicit knowledge. There's a lot that goes into it, as I'm sure anyone who is watching this uh, could attest to. So it's been a really fun journey. I've worked mostly across marketing comms, uh, organizational development, and I do a bit of all of that in this role. It's a very cross-functional role. And you mentioned it, but I want to reiterate, GitLab has over 1,300 people in more than 65 countries with no physical headquarters. And we were designed in the cloud, and we have built one of the uh, most robust cultures that I've ever been a part of, uh, we do get together in person. That is a part of what we do. And we can dive into the nuts and bolts of how we do that uh, in the time we have here. Thank you, Darren. And diving into the nuts and bolts uh, is what, what we'll do. Um, so a lot of companies that are building on Turing like, are trying to figure out um, what a remote-first company would look like. And many of them like, were forced to do this in the, in the last year. And now founders who are starting companies, like they don't think in terms of offices. They, I mean, the future is remote and the future is distributed teams. What advice would you have for a founder who's building her company for, um, in, a, in a remote first uh, fashion on day zero? Like what is something that they should think about that they may not know to think about um, it, it, uh, what would your advice be to this? And let's 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 sort of make this person real. Like, let's imagine this is a founder who's raised two million, currently based in the Bay Area. Maybe it's a couple of founders together, and they would like to go the the, the GitLab route and, and and go fully remote first. What advice would you have for some of them? So step one would be pressure test any of the workflows and cultural underpinnings of your company 
to make sure that they are resilient and can work outside of the office. So by default, a lot of workflows are office first. A very simple example is whiteboarding on a physical whiteboard. That is a very office first, office first way to collaborate because as you are writing on the physical whiteboard, it's not connected to the internet. So no one else can see it or contribute to it. So that's a great pressure test. If you have something like that that you rely on, you audit that and then convert that to a remote first workflow. There are plenty of tools, Mural, Miro, the list goes on and on. These amazing tools that allow you to do that collaboration in a digital way. So that even if you do choose to go into an office, you would still go about your work in a remote first fashion. And this kind of ties into point two, which is try to set the tone from a culture standpoint that things aren't about physical location, they're about where and how, sorry, how, not where, work gets done. So if you focus on the ways that you work, it becomes less relevant where any person is on any given day. And I'll share one other thing that we have seen work for us and has had uh, beneficial compounding interest over the years, which is document early. Create a company handbook, create a company a single source of truth. I love the folks at Almanac, almanac.io, if you need a tool for this. Start writing down your culture, write down your workflows. When you're just two or three or 10 people, it's a small enough team that you don't need to document, but be mindful that it's the easiest to start this when you have a small team and it will pay dividends down the road. And I touched on this in my intro, but tacit knowledge is such a fundamental part of building a company culture. When you go into an office, there are a lot of unwritten rules, kind of understandings of just interacting with people, of how things work and don't work. In a remote setting, you can't afford to have tacit knowledge. You have to explicitly document even how you work with one another. So it's not enough to just say, we value collaboration at our company. You actually have to write down what collaboration looks like. GitLab's values are open source and they're available to check out if you Google GitLab values, but I will share one anecdote here. We explicitly say that we collaborate with short toes. This means that anyone can contribute to anyone else's domain without fear of stepping on someone's toes because we all have short toes. And I know this is a bit <laughs> funny, but when you really think about it, it enables people who have never met face-to-face to have a shared understanding of how you want to treat each other and how work gets done. That's super uh, fascinating there. And you touched upon a few things there. One of which was for the first time founder to really pressure test your workflows and make sure that they are um, remote first. And in many cases, they kind of have to be digital first to, to be able to do that. Um, and the second thing you shared was um, having a culture that's focused on uh, how the work gets done and not where it gets done. Um, and, and third, um, write everything down sort of to help bring bridge the gap from sort of this tacit stuff that people have in their heads and putting it down on paper, which is much more scalable, has is much better leveraged. And these all sound like generally good things to do. And remote has a way of sort of forcing people to adopt best practices for communication, collaboration, alignment building that you might otherwise um, sort of uh, get away with uh, not following. It's, it's kind of one of, the, uh, one of the interesting anecdotes and really understanding what it takes to build a great remote team. It's largely the same thing you would need to build any great team. So at GitLab, we like to say we're all remote. So it forced us to do things that businesses should be doing anyway, but way earlier in the process and with way more intentionality. So of course, by documenting things in a systematic way, you can imagine how this would make even a co-located team, a team that's always together in the same physical space, have greater cohesion. So you would need less check-ins by each other's desk to get a status update on something if it was written down. So even within the office, you would operate differently. So a lot of these principles need to be done either way. And I share that because hopefully it makes the transition seem less daunting. 
These aren't net new things that if you invest in building remote muscle, they then become useless in a hybrid or co-located setting. These are just great business principles, but a lot of it is part tooling and part culture. And you really have to have both of those tracks going in the same direction for maximum effectiveness. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I know at Turing and at GitLab, we have a lot of engineers, uh, product managers, designers, and so on. And, and for them, working as a distributed team feels very natural. There's lots of good tools, lots of good processes. Is there any function or role that you found to be challenging uh, to, to work with uh, in a remote context? This depends uh, on the industry somewhat, but I would say in broad strokes, sales and customer service um, mm -hmm. can, um, not necessarily be negatively impacted by remote, but they have less flexibility uh, than some of the other roles. A lot of these customer service roles are mandated from an hour to an hour. So there's less ability for them to work a nonlinear workday where they can uh, structure their days depending on their peak productivity hours. And what I've seen in sales is that a lot of sales happen because relationships exist. And yes. especially around the globe, there are some cultures where an in-person moment at some point in the sales process is really critical in uh, ensuring that the transaction happens. And so certainly there will be areas where um, in-person moments are beneficial, but I would, I would offer to companies who are all remote and they don't have any headquarters, make sure that you invest in travel and leverage appropriate touch points to make sure that those in-person elements are there. The goal here is not to create a company where people never see each other. The goal is to create a company where you uh, empower people to do their best work around the globe, but are also really smart to invest in getting people together when it makes sense for the business. That makes a lot of sense, Darren. And speaking of which, uh, relationships. Yes, in sales, relationships matter, and maybe that enforces some constraints in the kind of travel that might be required. And relationships are key. Like one, one thing I think about at, at Turing is, are we ensuring that people build the right relationships with each other at work, not just inside their team, but in the broader org? And do people make friends at work? And it, 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 it feels like it, it would be a big part of making a, a company a great place to work, that people form these authentic, meaningful relationships. Is there something... Uh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Is there something that you would recommend to uh, ensure a company, um, the people in a company form the right relationships with each other? Yeah, you have to be very intentional about what we call informal communication. There are a couple of things right off the bat that you should implement. One is an onboarding buddy. So with every new hire, make sure they're paired with someone that's already at the company that knows a bit about what their role will entail and have them proactively set up coffee chats with key stakeholders. So the office version of this used to be, you would show up your first week of work and just roam the halls and hope you bump into the right people to start building your work network. But that's really inefficient and it's kind of a nightmare for introverts. So in a remote setting, make sure that you have an onboarding buddy to do a lot of that stakeholder building for them and then set this person up for success. These preemptive meetings also get someone comfortable with the notion of just dropping time on someone's calendar and asking for a coffee chat it just helps uh, create that mechanism for them. The other thing is consider getting teams together, whether that's giving your senior leaders budget to get their sub teams together every quarter or biannually. If it's an entire company-wide summit, if you can pull that off, make sure that you invest in getting people together. And the other thing I'll mention here is about the link between transparency in work and the sense of belonging. And so what we have seen is that as a team, if you provide greater transparency and visibility to work that's happening. So for example, if the legal team is easily able to see the goals and objectives for the engineering team or the communications team, they might not necessarily need that information, but just by working in an atmosphere where they have access to that information, it's easier to feel like part of the team. And so there is something to be said for increasing transparency so that you can increase a sense of belonging in your team. Mm -hmm. That's super great advice, Darren. So to summarize, like the first was to make sure uh, people have an onboarding buddy, somebody they can go to. 
And second, making it easy for people to meet in person. So you have the right um, kind of travel logistics set up, maybe something like a quarterly offsite or a quarterly meetup and, and have those things happen. Uh, and the third being increasing transparency in so giving people more context about other functions, their needs, their goals, uh, which probably builds more empathy for when they when people ask for certain things and there are certain requests, you kind of know why uh, that person is asking for that thing and maybe remove silos um, uh, a little bit by having good transparent uh, visibility. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. And I want to add one other point on the back end of that. I try to look at everything through the lens of opportunity and abundance instead of scarcity and fear. And this is one critical example of a remote workplace being far more amenable than a co-located space. When everyone is on the same proverbial floor, there's not multiple floors or multiple satellite offices, everyone is just one click away, it is much easier to be transparent, much more efficient to be transparent and share that work and give people access to that. Trying to cascade all of that information in a co-located organization could be a very tall task. And so this is a great example of if you're going remote, that part of your life should get much easier. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, do you recommend having any kind of um, structured in-person meetups happening at a certain cadence? For example, a quarterly offsite for the function, or a company-wide meetup in a in a certain in a certain year, or having a sub a number of one-on-ones happen in person? Do you recommend enforcing some structure on it, or do you kind of let it organically happen, where the understanding is? If you want to meet, the company will pay for travel, transportation, et cetera. So how, how much of it at GitLab is, GitLab is bottoms up versus some top-down recommendations on how to bridge the remote in-person um, divide? We've seen top-down set the tone, which fosters a lot of bottoms-up contributions. So I would recommend getting the entire team together once a year, if at all possible. And as your team scales, 1,000, 2,000, 10,000 people. This will become more difficult, but do everything you can to bring people together, at least optionally. Uh, it makes a big difference, uh, even if it has to be around a big sales event, for example, so that you can tie some business objectives to it. Make sure that you invest in it. And what you'll find is that in a remote team, in-person time is best used for culture building and rapport building. You can certainly do some work and strategy work, uh, during those times, but make sure you leave a lot of open space for people to just build bonds because that's the thing they can't really get over a webcam. I would also say for sub teams, especially in sales and customer support, they interact uh, a lot together. Try to get together quarterly, uh, biannually. It really makes uh, a big difference uh, getting together. And of course, the advice varies from team to team, but Point being, make sure that it's in your strategy. You want to make sure that if someone asks you, hey, when's the next time we're getting together, you at least have an IOU to give them. Yeah, that makes sense. Is uh, GitLab a VIP with uh, United or something? <laughs> yeah, we, uh, in normal times, we certainly do um, quite a bit of air travel, but less than you might think. Uh, what you... What's interesting is that a lot of people at GitLab have opted into this very unique way of working. And although we have people in 65 countries, not all of them are nomads and not all of them fit the stereotype of working on a beach in Bali. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There are certainly folks that do that. Uh, but just the freedom and flexibility to live where they are most fulfilled is a, is a big perk. That's great to hear them. And a lot of people listening are probably uh, engineering managers, product managers, or other execs who are managing teams. And for a people manager who's going to be managing a distributed team for the first time, uh, and maybe this person is coming from a more conventional office-centric culture, what advice would you have for her to manage this uh, a globally distributed team spanning multiple time zones? What are some things to keep in mind? What are some common pitfalls people usually encounter when they're managing a distributed team for the first time? So at GitLab, we have a sub-value, a substantiating value uh, called assume positive intent. 
But I think a lot of us maybe have heard that phrase, assume positive intent, but it's really amazing how quickly you forget if something happens in your day where it makes things easy to not assume positive intent. So the number one thing for remote managers is to remember, 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 assume positive intent. There are a lot of unseen things. And so you have to make sure that you start from a position of, perhaps I don't understand it. I'm going to assume positive intent and then uh, attempt to get a communication that helps me understand. The second thing is to assume that the company is the issue. So for a lot of managers, if you are sensing underperformance or maybe some apathy, it's uh, your default maybe to assume that the problem is the employee. But in fact, what should happen is that you assume that the company isn't providing adequate documentation or adequate upskilling, adequate uh, workplace benefits. What does the company need to do to make sure that this person is able to do their best job? And the reason why I would recommend approaching it from the company first angle is that if indeed there is a void in documentation or if indeed there is something misaligned in terms of the collaboration flow, if you solve it for one person, you now have solved it for the entire organization. So it is a much more scalable way to look at challenges. And the last thing is all remote managers should see themselves less as a director and more as an unblocker. So when you are in a physical office, you can manage by walking around in a remote setting, that's not really feasible. And so what you have to do is create a psychologically safe atmosphere where your direct reports are comfortable coming to you with challenges. And then your goal is to unblock them as fast as possible so that they can run as fast as possible. There's an amazing book called High Output Management. There's a section in there about managerial leverage, and this really relates to that. An unblocker as a manager seeks to create as much leverage as possible. So not to do the things themselves, but to unblock as many people as possible so that you create massive amounts of leverage for the people that report into you. That's great advice, Darren. And High Output Management is my single favorite book for management and leadership. Like I recommend that to every exec at Turing. I would have bought maybe like 20 copies of it over the, over the years. So I... I it's, it's a go-to. It's an absolute go-to. And what's amazing about it is it's consumable in nuggets and the nuggets yes. can be really, really applicable. So if you're overwhelmed by reading an entire book, just read chunks of it. I'm sure you'll find it useful. Yeah. And in the advice that you just shared there, I'm also kind of struck by how a lot of it is just good management period. Like it's not even something super specific to remote. I think you shared, number one, assume positive intent. Number two, assume that the company is the issue, like the what could the company do to make this person raise their level of performance and figure out how to, uh, how to solve that, remove the obstacles in the way. And the third is don't be a director, be an unblocker and think about the managers to, should think about ways to expand their managerial leverage over time and um, high output management being a good uh, recommended resource. Perfect. Um, so, so this is super helpful. And But for this manager, this hypothetical manager who sort of did, worked in an office and is now managing a distributed team, uh, how would you recommend they think about the time zone issue? Like suddenly she now has a span of reports uh, across all sorts of crazy time zones. Um, what, what's the GitLab approach and what is what would your recommendation be? Yeah, time zones are the bane of any company's existence. And one of the things that we've talked about in this call is that a lot of what we're saying also applies to co-located companies. And shocker, time zones are hard for co-located companies as well. If you have ever worked at a co-located office in Seattle with colleagues in Singapore, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Those two offices are remote to each other. So even co-located spaces have the time zone issue. The answer is complex and nuanced, but at its core, I would say, try to shift as much of the work as possible <clears throat> to asynchronous workflows. And so if there's anything, uh, status updates or FYIs that can be documented and written down and ingested at a time that is more suitable for a wider array of time zones, make sure that you do that. This is another opportunity to audit and pressure test. Are there things that we do synchronously that could be done asynchronously. 
And even if the answer to that is yes for only 15 or 20% of the things that you do, it opens up a massive amount of space in your schedule. I would say that you're going to need to um, be clear with your direct reports on the ways of working and empower them and enable them with the right tools so that they can collaborate asynchronously across time zones. Tools become really critical. If you're using a tool that's designed to be used synchronously and you just ask someone to use it in a more time zone friendly way, they'll probably struggle. And although email is asynchronous by nature, it's also not a great tool for asynchronous work because it's inherently siloed. It's very hard to get transparency on email. At GitLab, we use GitLab, the platform to collaborate company-wide. If you're a leader, make sure that there's a tool in place, a central hallway where work can be done so that you break those chains of synchronicity wherever possible. Got it. And uh, what are the tools in your toolkit uh, that you recommend for people to make that shift from uh, synchronous to asynchronous? Well, of course, I'd recommend GitLab, especially if you're already using it for engineering, you can use it for collaboration across the entire organization. Our friends at Dropbox, uh, Dropbox Spaces is an awesome centralized hallway. Um, Miro and Mural are uh, phenomenal tools. Figma is another one for those looking uh, for a tool in the design and collaboration space. If you're trying to stand up a company handbook, Almanac, almanac.io is an amazing tool because they have structured approvals, which is very similar to a merge request, if you're familiar with that technology. Uh, and then the from there, I would say, try to simplify your tool stack uh, as much as possible. Like once you have the foundational pieces in place, the next pressure test is what tools are we using, which are common tools, and how can we use them in uncommon ways? So I'll give you an example here. GitLab uses G Suite, so we use Google Docs. But we don't just use it the way that most people use it as a scratch pad. If we have to have a synchronous work-related meeting, it is written in our handbook that every work meeting must have a Google Doc agenda attached in the invite. So the meeting organizer has to draft up the agenda, put the attendees, an overview, expected outcomes, and then send the calendar invite. Why this is important is if you receive that calendar invite and you realize that you can't attend or you don't want to attend, at least you're able to immediately click on the document, add context, add your questions, and then someone can verbalize that question for you and then document the answer. So it's as if you were in the meeting, even though you weren't. You're able to contribute asynchronously even to a synchronous process. This isn't rocket science. We try to celebrate boring solutions and that's a pretty boring solution, just using a common tool in an uncommon way. But there's some amount of rigor that has to go into that to make sure that you don't cut corners because first there's one meeting without an agenda and then there's two and then there's three and a week later, no one's using agendas. And so the team really has to be bought into uh, respecting and honoring that hygiene to make sure that it sticks across the organization. Mm -hmm. That's super helpful, Darren. And speaking of GitLab, it sounds like you use GitLab for a variety of use cases that go beyond code collaboration and code hosting. Right? Yeah, we use it. We use it across the organization. Sorry, you were elaborating. Uh, oh, can you share a little bit about like the primary use cases that you use GitLab for in the in the company for collaboration? Yeah, we use it across the company. So even our design team. They don't design illustrations in GitLab. They would share those in something like Figma, but we would still start a GitLab issue within the design team to collaborate on Figma links, for example. So we would start the issue in GitLab and then we would share a link using whatever tool we were using. And that enables transparency. So even those who don't work in design or illustration would be able to jump into the GitLab platform and have visibility to what this team is working on, provide input, provide feedback. And so when you use it as a collaboration tool, you recognize that it becomes incredibly useful well outside of engineering. And this goes back to an earlier point, which is try to funnel work into one place so that it is as transparent as possible. You want to actively work to remove silos. And a great way to do that is to choose a collaboration platform like GitLab and then funnel your work through it. And in, in terms of tools that you use for video conferencing, 
do you have any best practices that you would recommend for remote first companies in their use of video conferencing software like Zoom uh, and so on? And, and it's, it sounds like for a lot of these, it's not just the tool, it's also how you use them. Like what's the process scaffolding you put around the tool? Yeah, it's, it has to be a combination of both. We use Zoom, it's a pretty boring solution, but it scales really well. And so mm -hmm. if we do have a company all hands and we need 1300 people on a Zoom call, uh, it will stand up to that. But speaking of using common tools in uncommon ways, if we have to have a work-related meeting, we will have the meeting as either 25 minutes instead of 30 or 50 instead of 60. Now, Google calls this speedy meetings. But this kind of goes back to how do we use Zoom? Well, we cut the meeting off. We close the Zoom after 25 minutes instead of 30 so that you aren't totally back to back. You'll have no doubt met someone who is experiencing Zoom fatigue. And it can be as simple as adding five or 10 minutes here and there to give uh, folks a breather. Uh, there are some really compelling tools coming out in the video space. There are some tools that allow floating orbs or avatars uh, to be in front of work so that you don't have to do all of your video chatting in one screen and then your work over here in another screen. I think we're in the earliest of innings, so to speak, for what where we could go with video collaboration. So watch this space. Um, there are some really amazing innovations coming out on that front. That sounds great, Darren. And, and earlier on, you mentioned how during onboarding, you like to set up these coffee chats like with people like, here are some people you should have coffee chats within your first month to get fully onboarded. Are there any tools or products that you've found that solve that use case really well? If you want to randomize it, Donut uh, is a great solution. Um, it's widely recommended and we definitely use that at GitLab. But I would also say create community or topical channels. If you are a leader and you have access to a team space or administrative space within Slack, if you create spaces like hiking or cooking or location channels, location Singapore, location London, what you'll find is that people can join sub-channels that are communities relevant to them. And then once they're in that sub-community, for example, if I join a channel on making music, then you're pretty sure that people in that channel are somewhat interested in making music. And then it becomes really easy within that sub-community to say, hey, I'm new to the team. I love making music. Would anybody have a coffee chat with me? Kind of breaks the ice somewhat and so that you're not completely throwing a request into the wild. At least you're doing it within a community where you know that there's some common ground. Got it, got it. Th that's super helpful. And speaking of sub-communities, like around hiking, cooking, things like that, uh, I know you had some very interesting thoughts on how to do even happy hours in a globally distributed team that kind of, uh, that brings the whole company together. Uh, can you share your advice to, to founders running distributed teams today? How do, you, how do you pull off a happy hour when it's a globally distributed team with people in different time zones? Yeah, so I'll give you an example of a 24 hour virtual pizza party. So as a celebration for a certain team, we said, all right, at five o'clock PM, whoever gets there first, Get out of town, go enjoy pizza with your family, bill it back to the company. We're going to start this 24-hour train of pizza parties, or it doesn't have to be pizza. It can just go out with your family, go out with your friends, go out with your community. And so what's incredible about that is with a diverse team that's spread across geographies, it's five o'clock for one person, and then it's five o'clock for another, and then another and another. And then you ask people to share photos. And so you end up with this kind of amazing 24-hour camera roll of everyone getting to dinner at a different time. It's a really simple solution, but it really reinforces that we're a big global team and we should celebrate the differences among us, including the vast differences uh, in geography. I love that. And, and this is something that you, that you shared with me the last time we spoke too, which is you, you, have, you, you have, you kind of have this recognition that people have lives and hobbies and interests outside of the workplace. And a good way of, of, of building a great culture is, is, is also what people bring in as a result of all these amazing things that they do, uh, do outside of, um, uh, of the office as well. Like you, you, um, I think if, if they're going out on a weekend, like you, you kind of like people come and share what they did. Um, 
could, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Like the, yeah, that this, point, this, this point is really worth harping on, especially for new remote managers, because it, it might feel like a bit of a paradox, especially compared to the Western norms in the uh, corporate space. So essentially, you could use something like GeekBot, a stand-up tool, an asynchronous stand-up tool for Slackbot that on a Monday or a Tuesday, whenever your week begins, you ask all of your teammates, hey, what did you do this weekend? And you just give people a forum to share photos and videos. And so while the virtual pizza party is certainly something that should be embraced, you don't have to plan a virtual happy hour, especially a synchronous one, every week just to feel like you're bringing your team together. Now, this is a bit paradoxical, but the more you let go of your team and you empower them to go out in their communities, the places that fulfill them and give them life, and then share those videos and photos and stories back with the team, you actually become closer to the individuals on your team because you're seeing the real them, what actually makes them unique. And especially with a global team, people have generally chosen where they live because it matters to them, because the community has impacted them in some way. And so when you invite people to share those photos and stories back of what you did on a weekend in these various communities around the world, it really opens your eyes up as a leader of just how diverse the world is and what really makes uh, our people tick and what really matters to people and where they're investing their time. Uh, and of, of course that feeds into work conversations and it uh, gives us a lot more to talk about beyond just sports and weather and the usual. That sounds great. And do you use um, uh, Slack for messaging or do you use some other platform? We do use Slack, but again, common tool in uncommon ways. We use it for chat, but we don't use it for work. We expire all of our Slack messages after 90 days. And this is a very simple forcing function so that we don't do long form deep work in Slack. If we can tell that there is a conversation happening in Slack, incubation is happening, innovation is happening, it usually only gets about eight or 10 threads deep or replies deep before someone says, hey, wait a minute, I think there's something here. Let me create a GitLab issue. And they port the conversation so far into that medium and then work continues over there. So said another way, Slack is really just a medium to share different GitLab links to make sure that we continue to work in the most transparent way possible. Got it, got it. And what do you use for a wiki then? Like what is the repository of knowledge at, uh, at GitLab? Uh, it won't surprise you that we use GitLab. Uh, okay. to the GitLab handbook. And we mm -hmm. actually use the merge request functionality so that anyone in the company can make a proposal uh, to any page in the company handbook. So for companies that are already using GitLab for something in their organization, it is possible to use it to build your company handbook or company wiki. For companies that want something very simple uh, and they aren't uh, using an existing tool that could be repurposed, I had mentioned earlier, but almanac.io is a great place to start. Got it, that's good to know. Um, in, in, in terms of one-on-ones that happen between managers in a, in a fully distributed team, uh, do you have any best practices for managers on, on how to do one-on-ones uh, in this setup? Anything different from what, what is commonly done in an in-person one-on-one? Yeah, so every one-on-one -on -one that we have has a Google Doc, an ongoing agenda. And what's great about this is it allows topics that you didn't get to, to still stay there. And then you're able to move it up to the next date so that things don't just fall away. So that's a bit uncommon and I would recommend doing that. A side note here is that our team actually does async weeks. We call these asynchronous weeks where we decline all internal meetings and we move everything async every six weeks. And we do this with one-on-ones as well. So instead of just deleting the meeting from the calendar, I actually keep it up there, but I change the title to async. And what that does is it gives me time to go into the agenda doc and then be very thoughtful in the documented responses to whatever is in there. And it's a really nice break. And of course, by the next week, I'm really happy to see that person's face again, but it is a nice way to remind, remind you of the async muscles that are useful in a lot of other scenarios. The, the last thing I'll mention here is make sure that the one-on-one -on -one is the direct reports meeting. 
I see a lot of leaders have one-on-ones and they direct the entire meeting. Again, this goes back to being a director. So they see a one-on-one as an opportunity to list out all of the to-dos for their direct report. But the problem with that is it doesn't give the direct report a medium to voice any of their challenges or ask questions or talk about career development. And so the manager has to be very careful to not override the one-on-one. Really critical to remember that a one-on-one is the direct reports meeting. And the manager should see that as an opportunity to unblock instead of just load someone up with to-dos before they're able to bring anything back to them. Mm-hmm. That's super helpful, Dan. Um, the, uh, uh, have you seen any good tools that people use for recording and transcribing meetings to make like a synchronous meeting at least have some of the benefits of an async meeting? Um, or do you intentionally sort of avoid doing that? There are some tools. Uh, Firefly is one. Uh, I believe Otter and Chorus are others. Uh, and then I know a lot of sales teams use Gong, G-O-N-G, a really great tool for kind of analyzing those calls and then helping sales teams make recommendations or changes uh, on their behavior. Absolutely, I'm in favor of leveraging technology to make lives easier. Some of those tools can be a bit finicky because they are just raw transcription tools. So sometimes they miss the context or they create run-on sentences that didn't really happen. So they're not perfect, um, but they're certainly better than no documentation at all. That sounds good, Darren. Uh, to change topics a little bit, the as, we, as a lot of companies think about their post-pandemic um, uh, work strategy, um, what, what is your advice for companies that are currently, that were previously office-centric, now they've kind of stayed distributed, their teams probably, a majority of the people at the company probably prefer um, the, the, the work from home, work from anywhere uh, culture. What is your advice for leaders at those companies on how to think about um, their post-pandemic uh, work strategy? So I'll mention a few points here, but before I do that, I would say go to allremote.info and just download the remote playbook. That is the blueprint for how to make this transition. And we recently refreshed it specifically for the use case that you just mentioned. We want to help leaders build long-term sustainable remote work environments now that we are through the crisis. So that's a better place uh, to go, but I'll give you a few things off the top. Uh, A lot of leaders are keeping some office space and they're attempting to go hybrid. There's this thought that it's going to be the best of both worlds, but without a lot of intentionality, it can easily become the worst of both worlds. You do not want to foster an environment where a subset of your organization works office first and a subset works remote first. You want everyone working remote first because that makes your company more resilient to future crises. And if you do maintain an office, you wanna make sure that it's not the epicenter of power. You don't want people going there to rub shoulders with the right people or to advance their career. I know this sounds crazy, but if they go to the office, they should only go there to work remotely from the office. So treat it more like a co-working space if you, if you have to have an office. And the the last piece of advice, I just really want to reiterate this to leaders, is if you are reopening an office, I would advise you not to go back at all and definitely don't be the first one back in the office because it sends the signal that the office is still the epicenter of power. And if you have spent the last 18 or 24 months building remote muscle through the pandemic, all of that will evaporate if you send the signal that everyone needs to be in a physical space or else they are risking their career. So be very, very mindful of the signals that you send as a leader. It's really important. And what have you seen so far, Darren, in terms of companies that run surveys in their team? Like what do, what do, I'm curious what you've seen from your vantage point to be what the employees prefer. Um, and and is, that any, is, is that any different from what management tends to prefer uh, in, a, in a choice like this? We actually just surveyed almost 4,000 people globally 
uh, at the remote work report. So if you give that a search, GitLab's remote work report, you can dig into all sorts of data, but I wanna pull out a few uh, points here that I think are germane to this conversation. One in three people said that if their work refused to allow flexibility and remote coming out of COVID, they would just go find another job. And I think this, this number will only increase as we move out of pandemic work from home and into actual remote work. So people at large are already enjoying the freedom and autonomy that comes with remote work during the worst of times where you really don't get a lot of the benefits of remote work. You get your commute back, you get some freedom of where you work, but it's, it hasn't been very easy to travel and to meet people for lunch and to work in coffee shops. Just wait until the world opens up for that. So from a talent acquisition and retention standpoint, for a lot of people, there's absolutely no going back and organizations are going to have to answer the question, what is their stance on workplace flexibility? The other thing here is this disconnect between people saying that they love remote work, but also saying that their organization hasn't yet built the infrastructure to support them in it. So people are raising their hands and saying, I love remote work, but they're also saying, my company feels disorganized and unprepared for this change. And so now I think this is a great opportunity for leaders to acknowledge where people generally want to go and build the right infrastructure so that they can actually work in a remote setting in a way that is more amenable and more enjoyable to them. That's super helpful, Darren. And was that, can you uh, share that link again where, for companies that are navigating this? Yeah, it's about.gitlab.com backslash remote dash work dash report. So probably a bit easier to just Google GitLab's remote work report, but some fascinating data in there. And we do that annually. Now we've left uh, last year's version up as well. It's really cool to AB compare last year versus this year. Perfect. And, and you, you said something interesting, like some people find that their companies are not super well prepared for from an infrastructure standpoint and they feel kind of disorganized in dealing with, with remote work. What is something a company can, can do to be best in class, to be prepared for a remote first workforce? Honestly, the first thing you can do is hire a head of remote or put someone in charge of the remote transition. I talked about how important signals are. There's nothing more important to the company than signaling an investment, signaling that this is a serious long-term consideration. And if you put someone in charge of this transition, that is the clear signal that it sends. If you don't do this, there's a bit of ambiguity, uh, a sense of waffling, and you're less likely to get people bought in. And if someone is in charge of it, they can then be responsible for going around the organization and press pressure testing all of the things that we mentioned earlier. The other element I would recommend here is to invest in L&D. You have to remember that not everyone is going to know how to work well in a remote setting. And not every manager fully understands the nuance of managing in a remote setting. And for some of these people, you will have to upskill them and teach them. And so L&D organizations are spinning up things like editorial workshops to teach people how to communicate with low context. For a lot of people, they're not strong communicators when it comes to conveying things through the written word and in a remote setting that's now a critical skill. So the organization is gonna be on the hook for upskilling its employees, but you're gonna be setting them up for success of where the future is clearly going. That's super interesting, Jaren. And speaking of L&D and investing in upskilling and people's learning, development and growth, when you hire from the global talent pool from, a, from all over the world, people come from different cultures, different backgrounds, and there are sort of these sort of societal cultural norms for people growing up in different countries. Is there something that uh, GitLab does intentionally to, to, to sort of um, bridge that culture gap to, to get people more comfortable with a certain single way of working? And I'll, and I'll give you a specific example. In some cultures, people are not comfortable speaking out against, speaking up against the managers um, sort of deadline, uh, maybe there's a deadline that's being communicated that's, that doesn't work, that's not realistic. In some cultures, people don't feel comfortable doing that. People don't 
feel comfortable debating, discussing, disagreeing with an idea uh, and brainstorming. Um, is, firstly, is this something that you observe? And if so, is there anything that you, that, that you do uh, at GitLab and at other companies to bring together people from different cultures into a more standard way of working? I think there's two things you can do here. The first is be explicit in, in, in empowering and recommending and encouraging things like dissent. We have a sub-value that's entitled valuing dissent. So we literally write down that you are empowered and encouraged to do this. But I understand that for some cultures, even having it written down isn't enough because perhaps they've worked in an organization where it was written down, but then they tried to do it. And then the outcome wasn't so positive for them. And so now they're a bit uh, hesitant to believe what's written down. In that case, I think the only next thing you can do is reinforce it by leadership. This very much has to be top down. Make sure that your senior leaders are open to dissent and they're open to that kind of feedback from people and make sure that you share it as transparently and in the open as possible. So that when other, people's, other people see things like this happening and it reinforces that this is how we work and that we do value dissent, they'll be perhaps more comfortable or more likely to lean into it themselves. It's really, really critical from a cultural standpoint to lead by example, because to your point, not everyone's going to believe what's documented, they'll believe what is actioned. Yeah. And I've seen you reference the these written down values a few times in our chat. How does a company go about compiling this, uh, this handbook of values? It started a long time ago and it's a living, breathing document. There were hundreds of updates and iterations to the GitLab values page in 2020 alone. Hmm. So for many companies, values were written one time by the founding team and then they just collect dust. They're kind of sat over here in the corner but I would encourage teams to build it with a tool like GitLab or Almanac and really empower your entire team to contribute feedback on making them more robust. If it's a living, breathing document, people are more likely to adhere to them. Really culture is just a barometer of how well values are adhered to. So a lot of teams will wonder, how do I create remote culture? Well, write great values and the culture will be how well those values are adhered to. I think that's a great, uh, great place to stop. Uh, Darren, this was super helpful and very, very useful for all leaders trying to think about um, how they're going to build um, successful remote-first companies. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me today. And if, and if there's a place where people who enjoyed listening to you can learn more, uh, where should they go? Thank you for the forum. Thanks all for your attention. Be sure to check out allremote.info to download the remote playbook that I've authored for GitLab. And you'll find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the usual places at Darren Murph. Awesome. Thank you, Darren. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.